0: I'm getting situated here. So good to see you all today in this beautiful day because isn't it green and the blue bonnets are out? Last year you had to search for a little blue bonnet patch, so they've all of a sudden just come. It's so fun. Uh, We're going to be talking about God being a father to us in a, a child parent relationship. So I've got a couple more of my little child parent stories. A father was at the beach with his children when the four-year-old son ran up to him, grabbed his hand, led him to the shore where a seagull was lying dead in the sand. Daddy, what happened to him? Well, he died and went to heaven, the father said. The boy thought for a moment and said, Did God throw him back down? Okay, a wife invited some people to dinner at the table. She turned to their six-year-old daughter, and she said, Would you like to say the blessing? I wouldn't know what to say, the daughter said. The wife said, Well, just say what you hear Mommy say. (laughs) That's a scary thought. The daughter bowed her head and said, Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people to dinner? (laughs) We have to be careful what we say. (laughs) Okay, we're about ready to come down off the mountain. Maybe we're already off the mountain. (laughs) We have been listening to the wise words of Jesus. He's been telling us what it means to follow him. He has been telling us what the kingdom of God is all about. And at this point, lots of the crowds and the multitudes have come up to join those followers that are sitting around Christ. The hillside is scattered with people. They were benefiting from the message, just like we are today, scattered in the sanctuary. I thought about that great song about ancient words that people sacrificed, so we have those today, we are listening to those exact words as those people listen, scattered on a hillside with us in here. God is alive. Oh, we're back on the mountain. (laughs) Thanks, Rob. To know him and his teachings was to know God. The words of Christ were no simple words from a carpenter in Nazareth. These were words from the Son of God. And so you know that every moment those people sat on that grassy hillside was a wonderful moment in their lives. They were healed. They felt hopeful. And I bet they didn't want to come down the mountain because we don't want to come down the mountain. When we've been in the presence of God in prayer or meditation, and we're finding comfort in his love and comfort in his words. It's so wonderful to immerse ourselves in his presence. But it's one thing to meditate on God and his commandments. It's another thing to put those things in our everyday, ordinary day into practice. But here's the truth. If we served a God who was not known for the characteristic of love, if he was a demanding God, then life would be lived in fear. Life would be lived calculating and striving. And those fears would make sense. Jesus wants us to know, don't be afraid to come down the mountain. Don't be afraid of real life. Because real life... Is not lived alone. We have a partner in God and He loves us. The people that were on the hillside with Jesus would say to that statement, What are you talking about? We live our lives for God. It's all about doing things for God, not with God. And when we make that same mistake, we live our lives for God and not with God, we miss out on experiencing the love of God. We miss out on living life in His love, walking in His love, that He designed our lives to be filled with that joy and that experience, surrounded by His love, directed by His love. Look at Jude 21. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now, this isn't about salvation, keep yourself in the love of God. It is about remaining in his love, making it an aim to live our life in the love of God. In John 15, Jesus says, remain in my love. So when we wake up in the morning and we look out in the window... Our whole day should be coated in the love of God. We look outside, there's the love of God in that sunshine, in that tree. When we face people that we know, we think, this is the love of God. These people bless me. When we go through the routine activities, we do it knowing that all things spring from the love of God. When we're hurt, when we're confused... We know we have the loving arms of God and the comfort of God in our lives. We live life knowing we are protected and directed and surrounded by his mercy. I was in academy last week with my parents that were in town, and there was this funniest little boy. I never got a good look at him. He, I bet he was about four years old, and he was giving his mom a hard time. I didn't see them much because you didn't have to see them. You could hear them. In most of the store and wherever I was I'd hear this little boy begging his mom for things and his mom you know how you get in that mode where all of a sudden you don't hear what your little child is saying she's just not not ever answering him he is just begging for this begging for that and she's just walking along shopping and finally it was so hard not to laugh I heard him yell out in the store mom I do not want you to be my mother anymore (laughs) And then he said, starting right now. (laughs) And the mother kept shopping and walking. And I thought, what if the mom had stopped and turned around, looked down at her little son and said, I love you. I'm going to love you your whole life. But you go on now, find another mom, and I'm going to head home and start making dinner. Bye, Tommy. How long do you think that little boy would stay in that store? What The first feeling that would come over him would be terror because his mother's love covered him. God's love covers us. We don't have to walk off like a wandering child. We don't have to live terrified and fearful. And when we understand his love, it uh, shapes us who we become, our attitudes, our actions, and our feelings. We aren't overwhelmed with life because we are overwhelmed by the love of God. When we come down a spiritual mountain into this fallen world we live in, we are still covered by his love. Jesus says, this love is like a child approaching a loving father. When Cassie and Tyler were very small, I had to call Cassie to get this picture last night back in my head. But Ted would do this chase thing a lot of nights with them upstairs. We had this big, long hallway, and he would play roach. Now, I don't know why they came up with a roach, but I said, Cassie, what what did he do? She goes, well, he got down on all fours, and he had this roach sound. We didn't know there was a roach sound. I won't, you know, mimic that. And he would chase them around, and they had their bedrooms up there. And you'd hear bedroom doors open, shutting, slamming, screaming, crying, yelling, going back and forth down the hall. And Cassie said, this part I forgot, then, Mom, we had this pretend spray can of bug repellent. We would spray him. And I guess when Ted finally got tired enough, then he'd just roll on his back, (laughs) stick his legs up in the air. But sometimes they would really get sort of afraid of him because he was loud and big and powerful. And you sort of have to remind him, this is daddy. He's big and powerful, but he loves you. It's hard for us as adults to understand the great power of God and the love of God at the same time. But it's possible, and Jesus uses these last few stories to tell us about this love. Look at Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be open." Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus says, approach God like your loving Father. And first that means we come as a true disciple. We have to remember that his words on the hillside here were about those who were his disciples. So this, ask, receive, it will be open. This is not a formula for the lost world to use to try to get things that they want. This is about true disciples of Christ, faithful children of God. In fact, in verse 8, the word, everyone who asks, receives, that everyone literally is referring to disciples. Secondly, we come to God as an obedient disciple. Look at 1 John 3. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. We've all seen the movies or read the books or the stories of these disobedient children that take advantage of their parents over and over and over again, and the foolish parents keep giving and meeting the needs of this rebellious child. And God will not work like a foolish parent. The parent that continually gives a rebellious child something over and over ends up bringing a future misery on their own child. God doesn't think we should go to him as a rebellious child and expect him to meet our selfish needs. Thirdly, on your outline, we come to God with proper motives. James 4.3 says you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. God says I'm not obligated to answer your prayers when they are just carnal requests. Fourthly, the one that comes to God must be submissive to his will. Look at 1 John 5. This is the confidence we have before God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That means we ask for things that relate to the truths of the Scripture, that relate to the truths of the kingdom, the things that the Holy Spirit leads us into that go along with the will of God. Fifthly, we come to God persistently, and that's what these verses we just read are about. We ask, we seek, We knock. These are active words. They talk about being consistent. They talk about being persistent. In fact, translated, it would be keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. This is not repeating meaningless phrases. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. This is talking to God often. This is seeking him continually so we can know his will. And think about how it's a progression here. starts out simply asking, then a little more aggressive. I'm seeking, then a little more aggressive. I'm knocking, but not in discouragement. I'm persistent because I believe he will answer my prayer. When we persevere in our prayers, then it tests the rightness of the things we're praying for, and it also tests our own sincerity as we ask for them. Sixth on your outline, we come to God expectantly. When we ask our earthly parents for good things, we expect good things, even though they're sinners by nature, and so we expect to receive from God what will ultimately be ...for our good, because he is without sin... ...and he is holy and good. And when we continue to approach him... ...continue to ask, continue to seek... ...continue to knock... ...he knows we expect an answer then. It shows our faith. Jesus told a parable, I think it's in Luke... ...to his disciples, and he says... ...I want to tell you this so that at all times... ...men will know they ought to pray... And not lose heart. And he tells that story of that widow who comes to the unrighteous judge, the wicked judge. And she has someone badgering her. And so she goes to the judge and says, protect me from this opponent. Give me some legal protection. And the unrighteous judge says, no, no, no. And the widow keeps knocking, knocking, Knocking finally says, I'm going to say yes before this woman just wears me out. And that's basically what he does. And Jesus says, you have a loving, just judge. Will he not that much faster bring justice in your life, you who cry out to him day and night? We should expect that from him. I read about Estee Lauder when she was starting her perfume and her cosmetics, and she needed a cosmetics buyer to buy her things and put it out into stores. She was young, and so one day she went to this big buyer's office, and she didn't have an appointment, and they said, She's got appointments. She's busy. Come again. And Estee said, No, I'm going to sit right here and wait. So she waited till about noon. She stood up, asked them again. They said, she has appointments all day long. Come some other time. And Estee said, I'm going to sit here and wait. At 5.15, the buyer came out of her office and looked down at Estee Lauder and said, come in. Such patience must be rewarded. God rewards our patient prayers. His part is like a father to welcome our communication, like he welcomes a child's communication. God welcomes our prayers. Look at Hebrews 4. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In these passages, Jesus compares the way a parent does almost anything for a child with the truth that as our heavenly Father, God also desires to meet our needs. Jesus says in this passage, you will receive. It w- you will find it. It will be opened. I thought about Jesus, how he loved to communicate with people. You know, nobody wanted to communicate with a Samaritan woman at a well on a hot, dusty day. But Jesus did. And because of that, she did receive. She received salvation. No one would have wanted to waste time with a woman like Mary Magdalene, but Jesus did, and she found. She found deliverance. No one would have wanted to have a talk with a woman who was just caught in adultery, but Jesus did. And she found, she found a whole new life opened up for her. God wants to talk with us so he can meet our needs. On your outline, God answers for our good. This little illustration Jesus gives about the stone and the fish, did you notice they're similar? A son asks for a loaf, a father wouldn't give a stone. What can a stone look like? A loaf just can't really be eaten. A son asks for a fish. A father gives him something wet and slimy, sort of like a fish, a snake, probably an eel because the Jews were forbidden to eat eels. So what the father would not give would be something that's unhelpful and sort of mocks the prayer. Jesus' point here is a loving father wouldn't mock a son's request, giving them a shabby substitute. God will always answer our prayers and what's best for us. He never would want to harm us. We trust in the answers to the prayers that he gives us. His perfect love dictates a perfect answer. Then we approach others compelled by the love of our Father because we have received such a great love. We don't have an excuse to not love the people around us. We have to be compelled by the love that God has for us. Look at verse 12. So in everything, Jesus said, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus requires we love in the manner that we want to be loved. You probably grew up knowing this as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It is one of the most famous things Jesus ever said. There is no parallel teaching in the whole world. And this is why. There were lots of religions, including the Jewish religion, that said, what you do not want done to you, do not do to your neighbors. It was Jesus' command in the negative. And this is a great basis for the law. We have laws against people who do things to us what we wouldn't want done to them. But it's negative. It doesn't call for any kind of positive sacrifice on our part. It's one thing to say, I must not hurt people. It's another thing to say, I must help people. You can't legislate what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is requiring on your outline that our love includes sacrificial actions. We encourage others, we give, forgive, we carry their burdens. It's not done to fulfill a law. We only can do it when we have God's love burning in our hearts. And this kind of a love really does change the world. We all have stories in our lives where people have loved us in the way that Jesus is talking about that can change our life. When we all love like this, with these sacrificial actions, instead of just saying, I didn't hurt anyone... The question we need to be asking is, am I helping anyone? That's what the golden rule is all about. We treat each other not as the law allows, but as love demands. No one asked more from people than Jesus did. We are to be like our Father, love like He loves, like Father, like child. One man said this, the only man who can even begin to satisfy the positive form of the golden rule is the man who has the love of Christ in his heart. He will try to forgive as he wished to be forgiven, to help as he would wish to be helped, to praise as he would wish to be praised, to understand as he would wish to be understood. He will never seek to avoid doing things. He will always be looking for things to do. Clearly, this makes life complicated. Clearly, he'll have much less time to spend on his own desires and activities. For time and time again, this person has to stop what they're doing to help someone else. To obey this command, a man must become a new man with a new center in his life. He can never do it until self withers and dies within his heart. Jesus says all the teachings in the Old Testament come down to this idea of loving each other. Look at Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Throughout our life, we will um, come a- a- across different spiritual leadership. Jesus next wants to talk about how God's love is a protection. It's one thing for us to love people. It's another thing for us to trust people blindly. And so Jesus says, i got to warn you, there are some scary teachers out there. And he's going to warn us because he loves us. Again, like a parent Loves their child. If you have a child going on a journey, you go out and you get everything they need and pack their bags and tell them what to do and you take them somewhere. Our life is a spiritual journey and Satan is constantly throwing obstacles in our way to get us from following God. And God takes us in his arms Like a shepherd with the sheep and says, I'm going to protect you from all this false teaching and false activities going on around you. Jesus says, watch for false prophets that lead you down a path of destruction. He's going to warn them. Look at verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Jesus says, love unconditionally, but don't place yourself under false leadership. And then I think it's pretty sad, but I think he looked up and he made eye contact with the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers that had joined the group on the hillside. They were well-dressed. They spoke well. They were educated. But they were not what they appeared to be. They had been pointing Not to the narrow road that brings true life, but to the wide path that leads to destruction. And they were encouraging others to their doom. Look at Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So Jesus uses the idea of two gates and two roads. Once again, my righteousness, the religious leader's righteousness. And he says, you have to choose. You are either in God's kingdom or you are not. You are either committed to God or you are in rebellion to God. And Jesus says, okay, the right road, it's got a little narrow gate. It's called repentance. And once you get in that gate, it's got a little narrow road, and it's called my righteousness. And my righteousness paves that path, and it leads to life. And because it's narrow, it means it's not always easy to take that path because the righteousness of Christ is a higher calling than what the Pharisees were expecting superficially from their people. It's also narrow because if you ever tried to get through a gate and you've got big suitcases or baggage? Jesus says, drop them. Drop those bags of pride and arrogance and whatever else you've been carrying around to feel good about yourself your whole life. That takes humility. Enter through repentance and get on the right path. The Pharisees say, This path is easy. Come on. It's the natural way of all flesh. Join the crowd. It's paved with hypocrisy and self-righteousness and selfishness. The gate's easy to open. The road is easy to walk. Jesus says destruction is its end. Look at Proverbs 14. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. On your outline, Jesus says, watch for the false teachers that pose as shepherds. He mentioned they come to you in sheep's clothing. Well, in Israel, it was the shepherd that wore sheep's clothing. So a false prophet deceives the sheep, not by impersonating the sheep, but by impersonating a shepherd. Satan's man masquerading as God's man. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. For men that are boasting are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Jesus says inside they are really ferocious wolves, and that word is better translated ravenous, ravenous wolves. They come with a selfish appetite, and when they get in that shepherd position, they get to have that self-serving, self-seeking appetite fulfilled. Jesus saw this in the leadership of the day, and as he continued to expose the ravenous wolf inside the Pharisees, they grew in their intensity to figure out a way to have this guy crucified. Jesus says, hey, there's going to be more false teachers, not only during that day. Look at 20, Matthew 24. False Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. It's pretty scary. I'm so glad Jesus doesn't leave us unprotected. He actually says, we can know them. I'm not leaving you here to be devoured. You can know them. I'm your heavenly Father. We will help you with this. Look at Matthew 7:16. Jesus says, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. We will know them by the bad fruit they produce, like root, like fruit. And I'm so thankful because we would be in trouble. There are a lot of really talented people out there that can mislead many. But people that live a lie, eventually, Jesus says, they can't control their fruit. You've heard of people who can't control their liquor. These guys can't control their fruit. I have a wreath on my front door. It's covered in these fake berries. And every day, some new unsuspecting bird flies over. I mean, it's slowly being devoured. Now, how long does it take that bird to realize this was fake? This is not good fruit. It's quick. They figure it out quick. Unfortunately, they need to tell their friends because they come back. (laughs) Years ago, Ted and I were friends with a Christian investigator, and he exposed false teachers, false teaching. And we said to him once, how can you really do that well? Because they're so good at hiding those things. And he said, you can learn a lot about a person from what's in their trash. Our friend went through their trash when they didn't know it. And guess what? That's what false teachers eventually leave, just a lot of trash. That's the only fruit that they can leave. We watch for their fruit. They can't help being revealed. Jim Jones, David Koresh, this new guy on the news, etc., etc., Their bad fruit exposes them. Calvin said this, Nothing is more difficult to counterfeit than virtue. And I think that's true. Then Jesus says, Watch for an immoral lifestyle, even when they speak morality. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Jesus said, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Words mean nothing to God if they are not accompanied by doing his will. That's his point here. Look at Romans 16. I urge you to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. And turn away from them, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. A spiritual leader worth following is one who can't only speak well, but they walk in the ways of God. These people, in this verse, they were even performing mighty deeds. Mighty miracles. But Jesus says, but they weren't obedient to the Father. Verse 23, when he calls them evildoers, a better translation is, they practiced lawlessness. That means continual, habitual sin and evil. From their mouth, they said great things. But their lifestyle showed disobedience. And therefore, they didn't belong to Christ Jesus never knew them. In fact, there's a verse in Luke where Jesus looks at these kind of people and he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? I'm not your Lord. There is engraving on a cathedral in Germany. Maybe you've heard this before, and I think it really reflects what Jesus is saying here. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light, you see me not. You call me the way, you walk me not. You call me life and you live me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. One man said this, mere professed devotion to Christ is just another Judas kiss. I thought that was a great visual. Jesus says, The tree that has set itself against me must be cut down and judged. And then we get to approach hardship by the same love that protects us from false teaching. Look at verse 24. And it fell with a great crash. Jesus is giving one last appeal here. Their righteousness or my righteousness. Narrow gate, wide gate. Good fruit, bad fruit. Strong foundation, weak foundation. One leads to life, one leads to death. Jesus says here, you've heard me. You've all been listening But hearing has no value if you don't let it result in action. You should practice my words that you've been listening to. On your outline, we build our lives using the divine specification of God's word. This gives us a rock-solid foundation for life. And Jesus says on your outline, The house built on the rock is the life of obedience. Jesus is the rock. His teachings and his character represent the rock. Look at Isaiah 28. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Jesus says, now that you've heard, build on my words. Build on me. If this is your choice, you will be protected. Life will not be able to overcome you. You are protected by my love. Look at Proverbs 10. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. 1 John, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They provide that firm foundation. The foolish man built their house on sand, which really represents everything their teachers have been teaching them. All the self-righteousness, the legalism, all the false traditions they'd been following, people that later on would play lip service to Christ, but their hearts would be far from him. And I thought, which house is harder to build? It's as easy to build a house on sand as it is to walk on a big old wide path. Building on a strong foundation of Christ takes discipline, it takes planning, it takes obedience. Those are the people that stand up during hard times when judgment comes. It is the person in the easy house, on the easy path, that find themselves unable to cope unable to go on, unable to stand up to the judgment to come. And here Jesus stands up. He looks out at the crowd. He's leaving them with this choice to make. He just finally quits speaking. And they are literally astounded. That word amazed in your Bible means more than astounded. I think there was not one sound on the hillside when he finished and stood up, except for maybe the breeze blowing. I think their breath was taken away. He had pointed out all the inadequacies of everything they were, everything they'd been doing, their whole religious system, and he had pointed out true righteousness was in him. And then... He had the amazing thing to say, the most amazing thing, was that he had the power and the authority to determine the destiny of everybody on that hill. They never heard anything like it. Why did Jesus climb that hill in the first place? Because he loves us. He knew this many thousands of years later, we all would need to know these words because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Look at 1 John 4. We have to come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. I talked about Ted's dad, Charlie, when we talked about giving a few weeks ago, how he had a um, mission work that he did in Mexico, probably when he was in his late 60s. And he did that till his health got bad. And as he got older, Charlie was overwhelmed by the love of God. Now, you and I would look at his life and think, you're in a wheelchair and you live in a nursing home. Why are you overwhelmed by it? he had to think of a way to show he was overwhelmed by God's love. So he had his grandkids make some sheets that said, Thank you, Jesus, in every color and all different fonts. He had one on the back of his wheelchair so that everywhere he went in the nursing home, people would read, Thank you, Jesus. He carried them from room to room, and Ted talks about the times he'd take him to Starbucks, and he'd take Ted, and they'd have to match the colors of the sheet with the people's clothes that they had on. And he'd say, Ted, go over there, and Ted would be like, okay. <laughs> it seems silly, but what it, what it did was it sprung from a heart who really did get it, who understood what it meant to live every day covered in the amazing love of God, on the bottom of your outline. Christ without our safety, Christ within our joy, who if we be faithful, can our hope destroy? Nothing, nobody. We are loved, incredibly loved. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your amazing astounding love how you expressed that how you sacrificed your life that we would know that i thank you for the love you have put in the hearts of everyone in this room i ask that we would love through the passion of your love and be a light in this world we give you all glory today and praise your holy name amen